Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. First Peter chapter 4 in your Bible. Three more weeks in First Peter, and then we'll be finished up. Um, we finished chapter 4 today. We'll spend the next two weeks in chapter 5. When I was in college, I was very involved in the BCM, the Baptist Campus Ministry. Um, I was on leadership there. I was there almost every day. I think I was at the BCM probably more than I was in class in college. Um, I went to class, but obviously I spent more time at the BCM. Um, RBCM at Western Kentucky University had a, had a big influence among international students. We had a lot of international students at WKU. Um, we particularly had a lot of influence among students from India and the Middle East. Um, and so it was, it was pretty normal for us to have a good 20, 30 students in the BCM building from India or the Middle East. Um, we built a lot of friendships with them. We, we would um, do various things with them, have activities geared toward them with the BCM. We would let them use our building um, to, to cook meals together. And so you could come there on a Saturday night, and there, there'd be 20 Indian students there um, cooking food together in our kitchen. Um, they, Indian people use a lot of curry. Um, curry would fill the, the smell of curry would fill the building. That's how I learned I, I don't like curry. Um, I, I know a lot of friends who love curry. I can't eat it because I, I, I can't get past the smell. Um, we had ping pong nights. International students love playing ping pong. They're very good at it. That's how I learned I'm the world's worst ping pong player, uh, having those nights. Um, during those times, I got to have some really good conversations with some Muslim students about Jesus and the gospel. Um, we saw a couple students get really close to renouncing Islam and trusting Jesus. One student in particular, um, he was a Muslim guy, was at the BCM. He was really invested um, and he, we were really pouring into him. We were doing Bible study with him. We were answering questions about Jesus that he had. He was so close to receiving Christ. And then all of a sudden, he disappeared. He suddenly wasn't a student anymore. He was gone. He wasn't present on campus. Nobody could get in touch with him. He was nowhere to be found. We kind of deduced that he was sharing with his family, that he was considering Christianity, and they yanked him back to the Middle East to prevent him from becoming a Christian. Muslims are often very reluctant to come to faith in Jesus, even if it makes complete sense to them, because it will greatly impact their lives. It, it will greatly impact their lives. If someone gets baptized as a Christian in the Middle East out of Islam, it's pretty likely their family will disown them or have them killed. In fact, many times they get baptized expecting and knowing that's going to happen to them. They're not surprised when it happens. 
different story here in the United States. We have enjoyed 200 plus years of religious freedom. I praise the Lord for religious freedom. It's one of the greatest things about our nation. Um, here in the rural South, very little, there's very little opposition to the Christian faith. Nobody loses their job in the South for being a Christian. Nobody gets pushed out of their family in the South for being a Christian. Very few people even get ridiculed in any way for becoming a Christian. It's almost expected that kids in the South are going to put their faith in Christ as sure as they're going to receive their driver's license one day. If major persecution ever comes to America, the South will probably be the last place that it reaches. That makes us ill-prepared for when opposition and persecution does come. Many of us get offended when anyone opposes our faith in any way. What's wrong with those people? Their mom didn't use a belt enough, obviously but you're just completely forgetting what the Bible says. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15.20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Matthew 24.9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. We live in a world in which all people are sinners, and sinners hate God and hate God's people. And we've often believed in the United States that, that major tribulation would only come in the final days of human history. And depending on your viewpoint of the end times, you wouldn't even be here for it. You'd get taken out. But Christians in China are not living with such belief. No, they are not living thinking someday it's going to get real hard to be a Christian. Go to Afghanistan right now and ask a Christian, aren't you just so glad we're not going to have to experience tribulation here on earth? That, that would be deeply insulting to them because they're living tribulation now. We must be prepared that we could be opposed for our faith right here in the United States. In many ways, we're starting to see that, and we can only assume that as time passes, it's going to get worse. As the current older generation passes on, the younger generation is that, that's less influenced by the Christian faith is the only thing left, they will have less reason to, to treat Christians well. So what do we do as opposition to the Christian faith rises? 1 Peter 4. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to finish the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, do not be surprised when you suffer. 
Do not be surprised when it happens. Suffering, remember, in the book of 1 Peter is, is referring to persecution and opposition. It's not sickness. It's not bills. It's not all kinds of things that are common to all men. No, it's actual suffering at the hands of other people for being a Christian. That's what Peter's talking about when he's talking about suffering. You should expect that that is going to happen to you. Christ suffered. He was the suffering servant. The world did not receive him. The world hated him. Why would it not be our story too? Why are we surprised that laws would be passed in America that go against the Christian faith? Why would we be surprised that nearly every secular college in America has it as their goal to de-Christianize their students? Why would we be surprised that people can say things today publicly against Christianity and get a standing ovation for it that they could not have done 30 years ago? We're surprised because we forget what Jesus said. We forget that he said, I was persecuted, you'll be persecuted too. This, is, this kind of persecution is not random. Um, verse 12, read verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Um, the, it's saying don't be surprised when something strange, like something strange is happening. And the Greek of this verse is something like don't be surprised when it happens, um, when, when this happens as though something random were just happening to you, like it just happened out of nowhere. No, suffering for the name of Christ is not something that just randomly happens to you. It's purposeful. It's allowed by God. He allows it to happen. A lot of time when, when suffering comes on you, you'll think the devil's trying to trip you up. And it may, it, he may be. But remember the story of Job. Remember the story of Job. Who caused Job's suffering? Well, directly it was the devil. It was the devil who did all the things to him, but the devil had to go to God and get permission from God to do it. The devil could not do anything to Job if God did not give him permission to do so. And not every bad thing that happens to you is the work of the devil. Sometimes it's just the world we live in. The suffering you endure as a Christian may be at the hands of evil men, but God always has a purpose for it. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph reflecting on all the things that have happened to him. He was sold into slavery and spent years there, um, got imprisoned during that time, just, just a really bad thing. What does he say about his life? Brothers, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant that suffering for good. If you respond by lashing out in your suffering, you will miss the entire point God has for you in the suffering. You will. It is the fiery trial you endure, he calls it. The fiery trial in verse 12. It's a fiery trial. In one sense, that sounds bad. But in another sense, it sounds good. Think of the bad version of a fiery trial. Well, it's very difficult and it's hard. It's fiery. It hurts to go through fire. Fire burns you. Every nerve in your body, when fire hits, it screams to run away. But there's also a good side to a fiery trial. We, 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 sang, um, we sang how firm a foundation just a second ago. The third verse of that song... When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design 
thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It's the fiery trial. It happens to strip away impurities. It, it, it happens to make the gold more pure and complete. That's what a fiery trial is. They put gold into fire to strip away impurities. That's why I read James 1 earlier. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has purposes in the suffering you endure to use it for a fiery trial. What are those purposes? I'll give you a few. To strip away idols. To strip away idols. Things in this world you love so dearly, do, and they do not deserve your devotion. He'll use suffering to strip your, um, your, your idolatry for that away. Trials show you how worthless those things are. Trials show you how worthless this world is. He'll do it to strip away your hope in this world. You feel at home in this world. Some of you feel very at home in this world. Trials show you this world doesn't want you, so you have no home here. It'll lead you to repent of sin. Trials expose your sin and show you how much your sin wants to destroy you, so you run from them. And he'll use trials to solidify your devotion to Christ. Trials make you run to Christ. makes you more devoted to him. God has purposes to take your suffering and use it for good. So rejoice, rejoice. That's what Peter says in verse 13. Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you will be able to rejoice when his glory is revealed. Some of us need trials. We do. The reason your faith in Christ and your walk with him may be so weak is that you've never had to suffer for him. You've never had to suffer for him. You've never been opposed for being a Christian. You've never been ridiculed for him, and that's exactly what you need. Maybe you're experiencing no opposition in your life for being a Christian. I ask you, does your life go places where you would experience opposition? The common thing in America is that Christians stay in Christian bubbles. They stay in Christian bubbles. They only associate with other Christians. They don't interact with anybody who's not a Christian. The Bible's clear. Go make disciples of all the nations. You have to go to people who aren't disciples to make disciples. Do you have non-Christians in your life? Do you have any? You must. If you don't, let's figure out a way to get you around them. The whole reason I go to Panera Bread the majority of Tuesdays to write my sermon is that I, as a pastor, mostly interact with just church people, and I need a place where I'm going to run into people who are not Christians. And as I'm there week after week, my goal is that I will begin to talk with those people and build relationships with them, that I might speak a good word for Jesus to them. You need a place like that. You need somewhere that you can go and be around people who are not Christians, who may not be Christians. Interact with them, befriend them, have them over for dinner at your house. You will likely have interactions with them that involve opposition to your faith, but that's okay. You need that. You need that. Suffering for Christ would increase your joy in Christ. You will likely, it, it, you're searching for joy in so many things, and, and it does not give you lasting joy. It does not. If your joy is even in the good things of this world, your joy is fleeting because those things are passing away. You need joy 
in Christ. Peter says, rejoice in suffering. Why? Why on earth would I rejoice in suffering? Because you learn more about Jesus through suffering. You share in Christ's sufferings, he says, verse 13. You share in his sufferings. Jesus suffered, and you now get to share in what he went through so that you may know him more and more and know his glory more. Glory comes through suffering. It's how it worked for Jesus. It's how it works for you. So that you are, um, verse 14, filled up more with this Holy Spirit. Um, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, verse 14, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is, the Holy Spirit will rest on you if you're insulted for the name of Jesus. How do you think the early Christians endured so much suffering? How did they do it? Let let me just show you an example of of what some of the early Christians went through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11. Paul documents some of the things he went through. Verses 23 through 28. Listen to what Paul says about what he's gone through. Actually, 24, not 23. Actually, yeah, I'll read 23. Are there servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often with Without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure of me of my anxiety for the churches all right you lost me at many sleepless nights in that list okay like and, and you lost a lot of us at being in the cold and being in hunger and thirst like like how did they endure all this how did they endure that because you have the holy spirit in you if you're a christian Remember, Jesus calls him the comforter and the helper. That's why he says here in 1 Peter that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you if you suffer for Jesus. The spirit gives you help. The spirit rests on you and gives you more and more as you suffer for Jesus. So you can rejoice in your sufferings. You can. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice the train of thought. We suffer, that produces endurance. Our endurance gives way to to character, and as character builds, we have hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because we know that God's love is poured out on us through the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit there in our sufferings. But when you suffer for Jesus, you should examine yourself and ask, why am I actually suffering? What's the reason I'm suffering? Peter's going to deal with that in 15 through 18. Why am I suffering? Are you suffering, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So there's two ways you can suffer in this world. You can suffer as an evildoer, or you can suffer as a Christian. Which reason are you suffering if you're suffering for Jesus? Sometimes you suffer for the wrong reasons. Uh, kind of two ways I see it happening that you suffer for being an evildoer. The first is being persecuted because you're a jerk. Being persecuted because you're a jerk. This is when you are very rude with people calling out their sin in a very ungracious way, and they respond in anger against you. We must call people to repent. We just don't use picket signs to do it. This is when you don't go near sinful people thinking they might rub off on you. This is when you are really passionate about something on Facebook and you comment very aggressively and people respond really harshly back to you. This is when you treat others in an unchristian way. I'm sure you can think of another, a number of other ways. If you're persecuted for this, you're being persecuted for being an evildoer, not for being a Christian. And frankly, you deserve that kind of persecution. So there's first being persecuted for being a jerk. The second is being persecuted for covering up your sin and crying persecution. A dramatic example of this, um, I don't know if you saw on the news, it was several months ago, um, was with um, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, I'm listening to a podcast right now that's telling the story of Falwell's scandals and all the terrible things that he's done at Liberty University. Um, Falwell, specifically his father, who's, who's now dead, um, has, in, has in many ways been the face of evangelicalism in America. Um, now Falwell Jr. is trying to carry on his legacy. Falwell Jr. has had some scandals come to light uh, about a year ago. Um, and, and the way this came to light is that he posted a picture on Instagram of himself and another woman who wasn't his wife, and his pants were unzipped. He literally got caught with his pants down. He's, he's the president of a Christian university that prides itself on family values, and he's caught with his pants down. And from that, no shortage of reports began to come out spanning decades of scandals and cover-ups, most of which are too grotesque to share in church. Go Google it if you're interested. Every episode of this podcast that I listen to, like I, I end the podcast thinking there's no way this situation could get any worse. And then I listen to the next episode. And I'm like, oh my goodness. When a lot of these situations happened, they were reported. And they were pushed under the rug. And Jerry Falwell Jr., when he was asked about it, would just play an us versus them card. Uh, the media is trying to shut us down here, what we're trying to do at Liberty. Um, the liberals are wanting to destroy us. That, that, that's what he would do. He would cry persecution. He was being completely wicked, and he would cry persecution to cover it up. Reports say otherwise. It's not the liberals trying to shut him down. R reports say he's a sick psychopath who gets pleasure out of the most godless and horrendous things. Reports say he's not actually a follower of Jesus, and that's clear in his blatant rejection of the ways of Jesus. Reports say that he needs to repent and trust Christ for salvation. It's not persecution. It's not persecution. Falwell covered up his sins for decades and cried that he was being persecuted, and most of American evangelicals bought it. If you're receiving criticism for the sin that you're living in, you're not being persecuted. You're being convicted. There's a big difference. If you're going to be persecuted, be persecuted for being a Christian. That's what Peter says. Be persecuted for being a Christian. How many times do you think the word Christian appears in the Bible? If you had to guess, how many? The correct answer is three. 
The word Christian only appears in the Bible three times, right here and twice in the book of Acts. Christian, the word Christian was originally a word of insult to followers of Jesus that the world gave them. Later in history, they adopted the term that, that that's what they would be called. But early on, it was meant to mock followers of Jesus. They're Christians. Something like today being called a fundamentalist or a Bible thumper. Back then, being called a Christian, that's what it was. Being a Christian is, in that day, publicly identifying with Christ. And the Christian term was tried to be used to shame them. If you suffer for being a Christian, do not be ashamed, Peter says. Do not be ashamed. We don't have to be ashamed when the world mocks us. When the world calls us closed-minded because we believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, we don't have to be ashamed for that. We know the way to salvation, people. We don't have to be ashamed to know that. When, when the world calls us a Bible thumper because we hold to the truths of Scripture, we don't have to be ashamed for that. God has revealed himself to us in his word, and we praise him for that. We are not ashamed for that. When the world calls us morons for gathering for worship during COVID-19, we don't be ashamed for that. We're doing what Jesus commanded us. If you suffer for being a Christian, glorify God in that name. That's what he says. If anyone, verse 16, if you suffer for being a Christian, glorify God in that name. You call me a fundamentalist, and so I am. Not in the sense of what you think a fundamentalist is, but in the sense that I will hold to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, absolutely, I will not waver. You call me a Bible thumper, and so I am. I love this book, and I will not depart from it, because it is the word of the very God who created me. I will not be ashamed for those labels. We're all going to endure suffering. He says in verse 17 and 18, Basically presents the idea, everybody's going to suffer, Christian and non-Christian. Christians will endure suffering now, and they'll see glory for eternity. Non-Christians will suffer, will, will endure, will have glory now, being at home in this world, and they will endure suffering for eternity. That's the point of 17 through 18. If the children of God, he says, are um, literally having to endure suffering from the world to enter the kingdom of God, what will those who don't enter endure? That's the question. I say all this today, but I still recognize suffering's hard. It's hard. There's barely a week that goes by these days that I don't contemplate how it might become more difficult in the future to be a Christian. Uh, how I might have to hold, with, hold to convictions in the face of opposition that my mentors in ministry did not have to. Uh, I regularly wonder if suffering for the church gets worse in America in the coming years, am I going to endure or am I going to chicken out? Like that's regularly going through my mind. My muscles are not trained for suffering, and, and most of ours aren't this kind of suffering. It's not. Am I going to be able to carry that weight is a question I wonder regularly. Peter gives a charge to those who are suffering, verse 19. He says, entrust your soul to the faithful creator and do good. As you suffer, entrust your soul to the faithful creator and do good. So two things, entrust your soul to Christ, hold fast to Jesus, do not let go of him, no matter the opposition that comes for following him. Because the temptation will be to turn away from him so as not to receive the hatred from the world, to renounce our faith, or at least be silent about it. You know, 
Maybe if I just don't bother anybody and never talk about my faith, I won't get hated. I'll get the best of both worlds. I won't endure suffering here, and I'll get glory forever. Yet the demands of Scripture are that you open your mouth about Christ. You don't keep silent about him. How will they believe, Paul says in Romans, how will they believe if they never hear? How will they hear if you never speak? That's what, he, that's what Paul says in Romans. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That would seem to imply that you're speaking of Jesus to those around you. You're being persecuted for it. Peter says, entrust your soul to the faithful creator. He's faithful. He will not leave you. No matter how much the world hates you, he will not leave you. Your life is in the hands of the sovereign God. He wants to do good to you. He wants the best for you. He may have you go through suffering and trials, but it's because he knows it's for your good because he can see the other side of it. He knows what's coming. He will cause all things to work together for good for you if you're his. Even if you face the worst opposition, he's still holding on to you. He's still got you. What is the worst man can do to you? They can kill you, and then you're with Jesus forever. So entrust yourself to him and do good. Do good. Continue doing good works, even to those who are persecuting you. Pray for them. Serve them. Share the gospel with them. Do not lash out in sin toward them. Represent Jesus in all that you do. He continued to do good to those who killed him. He picked up the ear off the ground of Malchus, the soldier that Peter chopped the ear off of, and he put it back on. He prayed pardon for those crucifying him. The two thieves were hanging on the cross, and Luke suggests that actually early on they were mocking him, both of them. The one who ends up repenting is mocking him early on. And at some point, one of them asks for forgiveness, and Jesus forgives him. Jesus comes and redeems Saul of Tarsus years later on the road to Damascus. Saul's on the way to kill some of Jesus' people, and Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? And he forgives Paul. He makes Saul into the greatest missionary of the Bible. He does that. All because he is good. We do not do evil to those who persecute us. We do good to them. We remain faithful to Christ. Suffering will try to pry us away from him. We hold fast to him with all that we have like an anchor at sea. We do not let go of the anchor. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner peace between the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. The storm may grow difficult in the days ahead. Hold tight to the anchor and know that all that happens is for your good and that Jesus is faithful to keep you no matter the opposition from the world. Hold fast to the anchor and never let go. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the anchor of our souls. We've thrown the anchor into the water, and we're holding fast to that anchor. And Lord, we know that you will hold us fast. You will not let us go. 
And so, Lord, no matter what the days ahead look like for us, if things get better in our world or things get worse, Lord, help us to hold fast to that anchor and never let go. In Jesus' name, amen.